Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. The prophet Jeremiah lived during a very tumultuous time in the Middle East. For almost 300 years, Assyria had been the dominant power in the region and an ever-present threat to Israel and Judah. But in 612 BC, Assyria's capital city, Nineveh, was captured by a new world power, Babylon, and the political landscape of that region underwent drastic changes. Political upheaval was not just something Jeremiah watched from a distance, however. His own nation, Judah, would go through plenty during his lifetime. When Jeremiah first began his ministry around 627 BC, the good and righteous King Josiah reigned in Jerusalem. But in 609, Josiah was killed in a battle with Egypt. His wicked son, Jehoahaz, then became king, but he was quickly deposed and taken as a prisoner to Egypt. Jehoahaz was replaced by his brother, Jehoiakim, and the nation spiraled from that time on. In its weakened state, Judah became easy prey for surrounding nations who mercilessly attacked her until eventually Babylon conquered King Jehoiakim and took him into captivity. It would only be a matter of time before the whole nation would suffer the same fate. Jeremiah foresaw this and warned the people of the coming destruction, but like so many prophets before him, he also spoke of a day when Yahweh would return and make everything right again. Jeremiah rested in a promise that God was going to come and make everything right. Jeremiah, if I had to kind of summarize it in a sentence, is God's message through the prophet Jeremiah that despite their covenantal unfaithfulness, our covenantal God will not allow sin to get the final word. That Israel had rebelled against God. They turned their backs on God. God had made a covenant with them, established a people through them, desired a relationship with them, and yet they rebelled. In their rebellion, God called out to them, trying to draw him back to him, draw them back to himself to be again in relationship with him, and yet they did not listen to him. They continued to willfully turn against their God. And yet God, because he is faithful, was unable to let sin get the final word. Jeremiah is a book of both justice and mercy. Justice in that God promised from the very beginning of the old covenant that he would send destruction, send judgment if Israel was not faithful. That if they hoard themselves out to other gods, if they were wicked, if they did not act justly in the land, that he would send judgment. And that is what he does. Throughout the book, we see God promising this great group from the north that would come and destroy Jerusalem. As we read on, we find out that it is the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar, this great empire, this world-dominating empire was going to come and in God's judgment, condemn the people. Chapter 25 of Jeremiah says that for 70 years, the people of Israel would be cast out, exiled, that God's judgment was going to come upon them. And yet, even in the midst of the difficulty, and even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God would not let sin get the final word. And he would send hope. Hope, a promise, a promise that he was gonna make everything right. And promises, as you probably know, ring, ring out throughout the entire scriptures. Starts in the beginning and goes through the very end. In the beginning, God gives a promise, 
a promise to Adam and Eve that he would have communion with them, that he would create them, give them life, sustain them, and give them co-rule over the things of the earth if they would multiply, if they would work the ground, if they would not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet in that covenant, they broke. They broke the covenant with God. They ate of the tree. They disobeyed God. They chose their way over God's way, and God sends judgment upon them. Their innocence is lost. Uh, Creation is now distorted. Death has come. There would be pain in their work. There would be pain in their labor of multiplication. And yet, even in the midst of judgment, God always sends a promise. Genesis 3.15, you hear us talk about it a lot. God promises that he would send through Eve an offspring who would crush the head of the snake, who would crush the works of Satan, who would wipe out the works of evil and death. A few chapters later, we see another promise to a man named Noah. You know Noah. Noah built an ark because God gave him a plan. God created a covenant with Noah in which God promised he would never again flood the world and destroy all life. And he would show that promise through, the, uh, through a rainbow in the sky. That he would be unconditionally faithful to this promise. Go on just a couple chapters later into a man named Abram. And God calls Abram to go out of the land of which your fathers have known and go to a land to which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you in order to be a blessing to the world. And I will give your people a great possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we see further, just a short time later, God establishing a covenant with Moses. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. He is with the presence of God, and God gives on tablets of stone the law, the Ten Commandments. And then all throughout Exodus, through the end of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, we see that God is giving this long list of commandments, these things that Israel is supposed to adhere to. And if they obey, they will be blessed of God. And if they disobey, then the curse will come. Judgment will come. You know the rest of the story. Though God has given them by means of these seeming graceful things ways to have relationship with him, they do not obey. They turn, they rebel, they choose their way. And God, in a long cycle, sends judgment. They repent, he, they come back to God, and then the cycle starts all over until we get to David. David, this great king in Israel's history, who God promised in 2 Samuel 7 to set up an everlasting kingdom that one from David's throne would reign forever. And we see, even there, a promise linking back to Genesis 3, one who would crush the head of the snake and one who would reign over God's people forever. We see that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, these promises are pointing ahead to something greater. Greater because the Old Covenant was broken. It was broken. This old covenant that God had established was broken. And I don't know about you if you've ever thought about this, but as I was trying to think through this sermon and as I was reading these scriptures, I kept thinking, like, does that mean God failed? Did God somehow mess up? Was this covenant that God established not good enough? Like, did God have an intention that this covenant would actually work so that people could obtain righteousness through works of the law? Uh, 
as I read throughout the scriptures, quickly realized that no, God didn't fail. God had a very specific purpose for the old covenant. And so if we assume rightly in thinking that God did not in fact fail by sending the old covenant, then we are led to ask the question of what was the purpose of this old covenant? Why did God establish this covenant? Let's take a look. First, I believe that God established his covenant in order to reveal his character and his will. That God, because he wants to be in relationship with us, reveals himself to us. He tells us who he is and what his desires are so that we can be in relationship with him. Namely, we see in Leviticus that he's holy. You shall be holy, therefore, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's character is, is completely other. We are down here. He is up there. He is great, and we are small. He is infinite, and we are finite, that this God is completely other, and he's revealing that to us through his covenant. Now, I don't know if you've read through Leviticus lately or Deuteronomy or Numbers or any of those books of the Pentateuch, yet if you have, then you'd know that there's some strange things, that there's 613 commandments in there, some of which are just bizarre. And it makes sense that Israel, these people, weren't able to keep all of them. And again, does that mean that God somehow failed in his plan, or did he have a greater plan? I think he did. I think he was just revealing himself and his will through this law. He was really revealing not only his holiness, but also his desire to reconcile to himself a people, to be in relationship with us. So the second point is that God desires to establish a people to bless all people. The second purpose of the old covenant is that God is going to establish a people in order to bless all people. I mentioned it already, but in Genesis, we see God's promise to Abraham. This is Abram here. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, to, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says it again in Genesis chapter 22. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring, as many as the stars of heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations. God is establishing for himself a people for the purpose of all people, all nations, all people created in his image coming under his rule, coming under to worship him because he is the only true God. And though Israel and others have whored themselves out and worshiped other gods, he desires to be in relationship with us. And he proves that in his covenant. We see also that the purpose of the covenant was to reveal humanity's dependence on God, to reveal our dependence on him. We'll talk about it more in just a little bit, but one of the things that becomes very obvious, as I've already hinted at, is man's inability to hold to the law. As much as, they want, as we want, they wanted to work and make ourselves righteous in the eyes of God to prove our value and our worth to him, we are unable to do so. 
There's something broken. There's something not right. And we are shown in the covenant that we are dependent on him. And lastly, the old covenant points ahead to something greater. To something greater. It is broken. This old covenant that God established for a purpose is broken. Here's what Andrew, um, nope, here's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. For since the law has but a shadow, a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, like the old covenant had a purpose, but it was just a symbol. It was showing us something else. It was pointing towards someone or something, something that God would give, something that God would initiate, something that God would hold together and sustain because they were but a shadow of the good things to come. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The animal sacrifices of the old covenant are symbols, symbols that we are the ones deserving of God's wrath, that evil is not just something out there, but it is within me, that my heart has been wicked from my youth that it is deceitful above all things, that somehow, some way ingrained within me, I want to choose my way. I want to choose other gods over and above the way of God and what he intended for my life. And therefore, I am, I am an object of God's wrath. I deserve God's judgment because God has to wipe it out. God has to make clean all that is evil. That is what he desires to make all things new. He wants it to be good. He wants it to be right. And evil is the opposite of those things. And so he used a symbol. He used the symbol of animals showing that instead of killing us, he was going to take the life of something else. And the life of blood was pointing forward to someone else. We know that as Jesus. Jesus is pointing ahead to something greater. Jeremiah chapter 30 says this. For thus says the Lord, your heart is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. It's like they've been trying to put a band-aid on a mortal wound. The law which they're trying to uphold by their own virtue, by their own strength, by their own works is not working. There's something broken. And that brokenness is within us. And there is nothing we can do on our own to make it right. Ephesians 2, anyone? So, we see that the Old Covenant wasn't God's failure, but the Old Covenant was intentional. It had a purpose. It was to establish a people. It was to show that we need God. It was to show that it's pointing to something greater. And so our question next is, what's the difference? What's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant? Why is it so important for us? Let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 31. You can turn there or it will be on the screens. Jeremiah chapter 31, right in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, where in the first 25 chapters, God is pronouncing his judgment, showing over and over that he is going to judge the people unless they turn to him, and yet they never do. 
And we see in the middle, chapters 30 through 33, God promising something. God giving glimmers of hope, even though the people were going to be exiled, even though they were going to be destroyed. And so, let's take a look. What are the markers of the new covenant? Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. All throughout the prophets, you can't get many pages without seeing this language where we, God's people, are unfaithful to God. We have whored ourselves out. We have not loved our true God, our true Father, that he is the one worthy of our worship and devotion, and yet we have given ourselves unfaithfully to others. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, right? It was external, now it's internal. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. There's a positional and a relational change that is taking place from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Or God will not pay any mind to their sins anymore. That is hope. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of unfaithfulness, God would not let sin get the final word because he desires a relationship with us. More so, probably better to be stated, as God desires us to be in relationship with him because he knows that the most hope that we have, the abundant life that we look forward to, can only, we can only partake in that through his presence. And so let's look at the markers, the kind of nuances, the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. The first is man's inability of the Old Covenant and God's ability in the New. That in the Old, as we talked about, we tried to earn righteousness based on our own works and it didn't work. That the people of Israel tried and tried and tried and yet they were unable to by their own ability to earn favor with God. In the New, God establishes it. God ordains it, God makes it happen, and it rests on him. Here's what Andrew Murray says. Man was given ample time to see if, in fact, by their own volition, by their own strength, by their own will, by their own desire, they would muster up the power to obey God's law and claim righteousness for themselves via the first covenant. Like, that was part of the purpose, to show that we are dependent on him. We can't do it on our own. When his other impotence, his hopeless captivity under the power of sin had been discovered, there came the new covenant in which God was to reveal how man's true liberty from sin and self and the creature, his true nobility and God-likeness was to be found in the most entire and absolute dependence in God's being and doing all within him. God's being, God's doing all within him because we could not do it on our own. There was a mortal wound within our heart that we could not fix. It had to be him. And we see the incarnation in this, right? That God put on flesh to dwell among us and to become that atoning sacrifice so that 
in one sacrifice, one perfect eternal sacrifice, he would make all things new. Next, we see, after God's ability and man's ability, that in the old covenant, there's an external nature to it. And in the new covenant, there's an internal nature to it. In the old covenant, the law was written on stones and tablets. In the new covenant, it's written on our hearts and on our minds. It is within us. In the old covenant, there is a temple, a building in which God's presence dwells in this most holy place in which there is a veil separating that from the holy place, which is separating from the common place, that there is a presence, a physical, outward, external location of God's presence where in the new. Like we become indwellers of the Holy Spirit, that God's presence is within us. Here's what Romans chapter 2 has to say. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. That in Genesis, we see that God establishes his covenant with Abraham, saying that all the men of Israel shall be circumcised by the flesh, that it's outward, that it's external. But here, God is pointing to that it's not something external, it's something within you. That God doesn't look on outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Do, do you not know that you are God's temple and, the, and God's spirit dwells within you? Like, Do you not know that? That no longer is there an external place, that you have to go to a place with stone and wood and lights to come and be in God's presence. <laughs> I don't live like that always. Uh, I think, man, I got to get to church because I got to get right. Uh, I don't live as if I have free access to God, whether I'm here in a church building or whether I'm at home, whether I'm driving my car or whether I'm taking classes at seminary, that actually God's presence is with us. Now, for those who are faithful, that the spirit of God dwells within us and we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Next, we see that in the Old Covenant, God established a people, Israel, right? And that in the New, now, all people have access to God. God established Israel in the Old Covenant through Abraham, through Moses, through David, in order that they may be a blessing. Here's what Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 says. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew, who's not of the same bloodline as Abraham, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Those kind of things are confusing unless you start to understand the covenant of God, which says that no longer is there a distinction between my established people and the nations because I have given myself to them through you. Is this that God has been unfaithful to Israel? By no means, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 1. By no means. 
I myself, Paul says, am an Israelite. God has given us the opportunity to have faith in him through Jesus to partake in this new covenant. Many have not chosen to do so, but he has been faithful that this God is making a way for all people to be blessed in and through Jesus. Next, we see that in the old covenant, there was limited access. Limited access to the presence of God. That they, We needed high priests Priests to go before God, that only priests could enter into the holy place, that only the high priest once a year could enter into this presence. But in the new covenant, there is full access. And this is both a relational and a positional change, a position change for us. We see it in Hebrews chapter 7. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, there's a positional change that God no longer requires people in the line of the Levites to make mediation for us that the limited access of the old covenant is no more, and that now we get to walk into full access into the presence of God. That you and me, because Jesus has died and ascended to the right hand of God and is now making, making intercession for you and I, that we can enter into God's presence here and now wherever we go. Like This is the beauty of the new covenant, that we don't have to look to a place like Jerusalem to see and find God's presence. We don't have to walk into a certain building in order to hope for and be atoned for our sins. It's already been done. That now we have full access to God through the intercession of Christ on our behalf. And that is a beautiful thing. That is good news to you and to me. That God desires a relationship with us so much that he wasn't going to let us continue to, to fail. That he wasn't going to allow sin to get the final word. That he was going to remain faithful despite of us. First Peter chapter 2 says this, that you, the faithful, are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see this again, the blessed to be a blessing. We were made into the royal priesthood. There is a relational change that you have now. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Through faith, through faith, Jew and Gentile, slave, free, Man, woman, all have access to the presence of God because no longer do we need priests to make mediation for us. Now we have been made a royal priesthood that we can enter directly into the presence of God because of the finished work of Jesus. Lastly, we see that in the old covenant, there are many temporary sacrifices and in the new, there is one eternal sacrifice. Hebrews says it best. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which, is, which can never take away sins. Remember, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Neither can these continued repeated sacrifice take away sins. But, but when Christ had offered for all time 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Those who are being sanctified. Be holy, for your heavenly Father is holy. And the only way that can happen for us is through the work of Jesus, that God put on flesh and he lived the life that we were meant to live, sinless, pure, completely submitting not to his own will, but to the will of God the Father. And he, though he didn't deserve it, bore the wrath that we deserve for sin. He took on the death that was meant for us, that he became the atoning sacrifice, that no longer were the animals, bulls, goats going to have to repeatedly be made because he was the final sacrifice, perfect, once for all time. Those are a lot of differences, and they're pretty important. But why are they important? Like, what's... What's it matter if we really understand the old covenant or the new covenant? Well, first, I'm pretty sure that for me this week, one of the things I realized that I didn't really live according to those promises. That a lot of me wants to stand with one foot in both places. One foot trying to earn my way into favor with God and another foot trying to live in God's grace. In one way, I tried to live according to the works of the law, trying to earn my own righteousness through, through my own ability, through my own strength, and yet trying to understand God's grace. And I don't know about you, if you struggle with that or not, but I would assume that I'm probably not the only one. That somehow we live as though God and his presence is not enough. That the God who is covenantally faithful to us who desires to be in relationship with us, is not enough. And so we try to supplement God with other things, other maybe good things that eventually become idols in our lives, that become objects of our devotion and worship. And somehow we get confused that we're trying to seek God, we think, and yet we're living according to these old promises, this old covenant, trying to earn our way into relationship with him. And we don't understand that there's a difference, that God desires for our whole heart to be seeking after him. And that when we do that because of his work, that we have full access to him. That we can actually rest in the promise that God has forgiven us, that he's removed our iniquities, that he wants us to rest in his full abundance of his power and his presence in our life day by day. That there's not something more out there other than that we need more of him. And that is it. And he's given us that possibility through this new covenant. And the reality is that some things do not change from the old to the new. A lot of things do, but some things don't. Mainly, that God will be our God and we will be his people. Exodus chapter six says that very thing. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And Ezekiel, fast forward in the story of God's people. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And then we fast forward to a time that we look forward to at the end of time when God has returned and we are fully in his presence again, both in spirit and in truth, in physical and in spiritual. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He's making our hearts new. He's transforming our minds. We are now becoming a living sacrifice for him, not just because of our benefit, but because of the benefit of others. We have been blessed, and so we desire to be a blessing, and now this is possible because God has made it possible. He is the one who did the work, and we participate in that through faith in Jesus. There is nothing greater out there than for you to put your faith in him and rest fully in his presence. But that's not always easy. It might be easy to talk about. We might like to talk about it while we're sitting in this room or at our life group or serving in a ministry. But that's not always hard to live out and we get fooled, fooled into thinking that maybe we're not good enough. Maybe we need to work harder. Maybe God actually hasn't forgiven me for the stupid things I've done in my past. And we have to remember things like Romans chapter 8. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall, what shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Like there's nothing There's nothing that can separate us, no difficult thing in this life that if you truly believe in what this new covenant promises, that you can have presence of God everywhere you go, that the spirit of God will dwell with you everywhere you go and therefore give you the power and the strength to be able to be content and sustain all situations. Next verse. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that God has made it possible. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to live in the continual shame and guilt of your past You don't have to walk this fine line of living in the old and the new, like walk fully in him, rest in his presence, and truly believe in your heart that the best you can have is him, that his presence is all we need. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for making a way to have relationship with you. God, we do not deserve all that you have given us. And that's the beauty of it. 
that we can try as hard as we want, yet we will always fail separated from what you have already done through Christ. God, we thank you for the good news that we see even in Jeremiah. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. As you know, we uh, are spending some time in our services uh, in prayer together. And uh, looking at just the text that Justin was going to walk us through and has now walked us through, we really thought, wow, in light of this new covenant, we need to pray at the end of our service today. And so um, let's do two things. Number one, let's make sure we pray more than I talk. Second of all, let's be honest that we come here just like Paul's audience had to or Jeremiah's audience had to with the reality of what's going on around us. So if I can just take a few moments just to describe our context. We live in a nation that is divided, that is, uh, seems caustic. And I hear a lot of people use the word tired, at odds. We live in a community right now, pray for the Helton family, that is struggling. Young boy this past week took his life. And our whole city is struggling with understanding we as individuals living in this country and a part of this community are therefore struggling. We take all of that and then we walk into the presence like our brother challenged us to think of this morning. So don't leave the conflict or the struggle or the pain or the brokenness, but let us take it to the covenant-making, faithful God in prayer. Amen? Stand with me. And let's pray. So God, as one we stand, each of us with unique and different struggles, pain, confusion, frustration, brokenness. But God, we stand as one in you more than being united in our confusion or being united in our ideology, we are united in Christ. I thank you for the covenant that Jeremiah spoke of that we now enjoy. Father, forgive us when we live more in light of the circumstances around us than the hope that we heard preached to us today. Father, may those words that were spoken, those words that were read, those words that were um, given to us, Father, may they be the ones that begin to reorder our thinking and provide a hope by your Spirit and for your glory. Father, I pray that we would not try to escape the difficulties of our circumstances, but as your people called by your name, united. May we now engage the world around us in light of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. May we remember that there is no adversity, there is no obstacle, there is no accuser that could stand before us. Father, may our strength and our hope come from you and you alone. And Father, for that reason, may we be 
your ambassadors of peace. May we find strength in our greatest times of need, knowing you, God of all comfort, have not changed. Father, may we be very aware that we are not speaking to the air. We are not self-talking right now, but we are speaking to the creator, the one true God who brought out Abraham, who gave Israel words of life, but who ultimately gave life through his son, Jesus. And so we praise your name. And all God's people said, amen. Before you leave, two quick announcements. Um, actually, three. The, the last one is always, the, or the, the, the first one I'm going to give you is this. We'd love to continue this conversation. I know Justin ran through a lot of scripture and hopefully uh, most of what you've already heard, but maybe you have some questions or some ideas. Um, men and women, elders, Stephen ministers, pastors are going to be down front. We'd love to talk with you about this hope that you're going to need to enjoy and to be victorious in the week ahead, weeks ahead, months ahead. Second of all, we've got that concert with a conscience is coming up and tickets will be available in the lobby. And lastly, next Sunday, um, it's fifth service Sunday, so we get to have communion together. It's one of my favorite times. Uh, it's going to be just spread all around this room, but it's also going to be a time for us to give to our Help Build Hope. And instead of passing the plate, we're going to have offering boxes. And so as you come, be prepared to give to that. Um, I pray that as God's people, we will rise up and uh, pay for those houses that we already built. Listen, we're going to be able to take care of it. Don't you believe that? We always have. And we will continue to do that. We'll be taking up that offering next Sunday. We love you guys. God bless. Go in his peace and strength.